Chapter Seven of the Annals of Anne by Kate Trimble Sharber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Being in love with Marcella weighed so on Julius's mind that he couldn't stay in New York but one week, where the magazine is that he draws for. So he came back and has been here ever since, loving and drawing and sending them jobs by mail. Right away they set the wedding for the eleventh of April, which seems like it never will come. Me being in a big hurry for it. Poor Julius gets more and more delighted every day, talking a heap about what a happy home they're going to have, not realizing that Chopin and Dishpan didn't go together. He stays around and advises Marcella about her clothes and such like all day long. He says she reminds him of a narcissus, being tall and creamy skinned, so he wants all her dresses to be either white or light green the color of right young lettuce but she knows when really to take his advice and when just to make like she's taking it the way most ladies do with men why it would take a little pink milksop like bertha parks to wear such colors as those she said behind his back one day but i don't think marcella better be calling bertha a milksop just because she has to handle baby bottles all the time for a person never can tell what might happen to them one of the nicest things about the wedding is the bridesmaids. They consist of girls born partly here in the country, partly in the cities Marcella has visited and made friends with. The one I like best is Miss Cicely Reeves, though most people around here just call her Sis, being very small, with fluffy hair and cute ways and dimples. She has a good many lovers of different kinds, but don't seem to like one above another. She is a great hand to act romantic such as falling in love with a man in a streetcar, or expecting her future husband to be a certain size and comb his hair a certain way, and things like that. This often keeps young ladies from getting married a long time, for mother says you oughtn't be too choice about size and hair, but I can't help being on that order myself. I do hope I can marry a man on a jet-black charger named Sir Reginald de Beverley, who owns acres and acres of English-landed gentry. Miss Sis, had that experience with the name of Julius's best man. It happened that we were all sitting on the front steps one day when Julius pulled out a letter out of his pocket and told Marcella that he had just heard from Malcolm MacDonald and that he was going to be his best man. Who? asked Miss Sis right quick, looking up from the sprig of bridal wreath she was pulling the flowers off of. Julius told her the name over again and then told her that he was a very old friend of his and he was a fine civil engineer. I used to think a civil engineer was a polite man who ran the trains, but I know now he is a man that gets in the middle of the street with a string and a three-legged thing and measures the road. Is he married? Miss Sis asked, a heap quicker than she had asked who. No, and not likely to be, Julius answered, still looking over the letter absent-mindedly. The name sounds good, Miss Sis commenced, her eyes sparkling. I've never heard anything scotchier. Something tells me he must be my ideal. Then something must be telling you a lie, Julius said, laughing, for he couldn't be any woman's ideal. He is very real, an old bachelor, thirty-seven years, stern and precise, and he considers every woman on earth as a frivolous and unnecessary evil. The kind of man I adore, Miss Sis said joyfully, though anybody that knew her well could tell she was fooling. My life will be a blank until he comes. 
It would be a blankety blank if you had to live with him, for you are the kind of woman to torment such a man to death. All the more reason for his falling in love with me, as I have fallen in love with his name. And if he doesn't, I shall consider him a very uncivil engineer. Which was just her way of talking. This happened fully two months ago, but they've talked about it off and on ever since. And now he is coming to stay with Julius till the wedding, to cheer him up, I suppose. Sure enough, he did come today, although lots of times I imagine that I will never get to see a person I've heard spoken of so often and in such high tones, and sometimes I wish I hadn't. But it wasn't that way with Mr. MacDonald. Nobody on earth could have been disappointed in him, for he is one of the tallest gentlemen I ever saw with trousers so smoothly creased that they look like somebody had ironed them after he put them on. He takes his own time about saying things, being very careful about saying of whom and by which, like the grammar tells you to. Julius brought him over to Marcella's this afternoon so he could be making friends with her and the bridesmaids that were collected there. Remembering how they'd been teasing Miss Sis about him, I kept my eye on her from the minute he walked through the door. I was greatly disappointed, though, for she never seemed to notice him. I guess she took a better look at him than I imagined, though, for the minute they were gone she jumped clear across the room to where Marcella was standing and grabbed her and danced up and down. Isn't he beautiful? She said, all out of breath. I'm just crazy about him. Did you ever see such Gibsony feet and legs in your life? Which mortified her mother, it being impolite to mention feet and legs in her days. Julius is romantic, too, for a man, and says he doesn't want any flowers used in connection with his wedding except the sweet, early spring ones that favor Marcella so much. We have a yard full of them, and so Mother told them this morning that they better come over and gather them, knowing that young folks enjoy picking flowers together, and they will stay fresh for several days if you put a little salt in the water. It was the most beautiful morning you ever saw, with birds and peach blossoms and the smell of ploughed ground all making curious feelings inside of you. Marcella, being a musician, noticed the birds, and Julius, being an artist, noticed the peach blossoms. But Mr. MacDonald, being just a man, noticed Miss Sis. She would walk along without noticing him and take a seat in the farthest corner away from him. But anyhow, she seemed to do the work, which taught me a lesson. That if you're trying to get a man to notice you, it's the best plan not to notice them, except when they ain't looking. They sat down on the porch and rested a while after they came, while the Narcissuses, Narcissi they called them, which sounds stuck up to me, smelled very sweet from the yard. Julius remarked he wished they had made Rufy come along with them so he could have said poetry out of Keats, as it was just the kind of day to make you feel Keatsy. And pretty soon he and Marcella got on to their favorite subject, the ruby yacht, which they say is a piece of poetry from Persia. They talked and talked, which made me very sleepy and pretty soon I noticed that Mr. MacDonald was getting sleepy, too. He leaned over to Miss Sis and said, kinder whispery, I don't understand poetry, do you? No, I don't, she answered back with a smile on her face, which I knew she meant to be congenial. I knew this was a story, for she talks about the ruby yacht as much as anybody when he ain't around, but I didn't blame her for telling one in a case like this. 
I never could discover what the deuced ruby yacht was about in the first place, he said. Looks like from the names, I said, speaking up, that it would be about a red ship. But before I could get any further, they began to laugh and tell my remark to Julius and Marcella, which was mortifying. This broke up the poetry talk, and they began gathering the flowers. Miss Sis and Mr. MacDonald picking in pairs, by which I knew they were getting affinityfied. After they had picked till their backs were tired, Mammy Lou came out on the porch bringing a waiter with some of her best white cake and a bottle of her year-before-last-before-that's wine sitting on it and her finest ruffled cap, very proud. She was curious to see the young man Miss Sis was settin' up to, to see whether the match was a fittin' one or not. She took a good look at him, then called Miss Sis into the hall to speak her opinion. He'll do, I heard her say, while Miss Sis was telling her to Shh! Mr. MacDonald would hear her. He'll do, Mammy kept on, not paying any attention to what was told her, like she always don't. He must be all right for being a friend of Mr. Julius's would pass him. But, honey, he is tolerable po-faced, which ain't no good sign in Marion. If thar's anybody better experienced in that business than me and King Solomon, I'd like to see the whites of their eyes, and I tell you every time, if you want to get a good-natured, wood-cutting, baby-tending husband, choose one that's fat in the face. A good many wedding presents commenced to coming in this morning, which was a sign that the invitations got to the people all right. You often hear of things being worth their weight in silver, but there's one thing you can count on it's being true about, and that is wedding invitations. You never saw such delighted people as Julius and Marcella. They were laid out on tables in the parlor and greatly admired. They're ours, dearest, he said, squeezing her hand right before everybody. Yours and mine are lairs and panates. This greatly impressed me, and I looked it up in the back of the dictionary when I got home, which is a very useful place to find strange words. It said, lares et panates, household gods which didn't make sense, so I knew the dictionary man must have made a mistake, and meant to say household goods. Gentlemen, said Mammy Lou when I told the words to her, if he thinks up such names as them for his furniture, what will he do when he gets his chillin'? This remark seemed to put an idea into her head, for Lovey, Mammy's other daughter besides Dilsey, has got a pair of two little twins that have been going around for the last five years in need of a name, just because Mammy Lou and Ike, their father, can't ever agree on one, a name or anything else. Them's the very names for the little angels, Mammy said, washing the dinner dishes deep in thought, for the twins being boys and girls, the names being able to accommodate themselves to airy sect proves that they're the very thing. She studied over it for a good while, I guess on the account of Ike, although Mammy is usually what she calls very plain-spoken with him. A plain-spoken person is one that says nasty things to your face and expects you not to get mad. When they say them behind your back, they're diplomatic. But finally she started off to name them, and having had so much trouble already with Ike, I saw her slip her heavy-soled slippers into her pocket before she started. She stayed away a long, long time, but when she got back, she held her head so high and acted so stuck up that I just knew she had got to use both the names and the slippers. Did you name em? I asked her, 
going to the kitchen to get some tea cakes, supper being very late. Did I? She answered back, cutting out the biscuits with a haughty look. You just oughter saw me naming em. Which did you name which? I named the precious boy Penates, because I most know those common niggers round here'll shorten it to peanuts, which would be hurtin' to a little girl's feelings. Well, I said, continuing to show a friendly interest, ain't you glad they're named at last, so if they die you could have a tombstone for em? Glad she answered putting the biscuits in the pan but her mind still on the twins and sticking holes in the top of them with a fork glad ain't no name for it why ain't I had as much enjoyment out of nothing as i had out of this namin since the night i married bill williams it's a very thrilling and exciting thing to be a bride and if you can't be a bride you can still manage to get a good many thrills out of just a bridesmaid all of marcella's have talked about how nervous and timid they're going to be when the men are around and some say they nearly faint when a great crowd stares at them. Others say they bet folks will think they've got St. Vitus's dance from trembling so. Anyhow, they're all very modest. But Miss Sis, I believe, ain't puttin' on, for all she claimed toward modestness is that her knees get so weak that they nearly let her drop when she acts a bridesmaid, which is the way a good many persons feel. The maids have laughed a good deal over her knees among themselves, never dreaming that the men would catch on to them, but they did in the following manner. Miss Sis stayed all night at Marcella's last night to tell secrets for the last time, for after a lady is married you can't be too careful about telling her your secrets, and early this morning I ran over and saw her dressed in a pretty blue kimono, which set off her good looks greatly down by the woodpile which they keep in the side yard there's a hedge of honeysuckle which runs between the gardens and the yard and she appeared to be searching on the ground for something close to the hedge i went up to where she was admiring her company and she smiled when she saw me and she said very pleasantly can you help me find two nice little smooth thin boards i complimented her on her kimono and said yes am to the board question and then ask her what she wanted with them. My knees, she answered, laughing. They're so idiotic that when I get excited, they threaten to let me drop. If I could strap two nice little boards to them at the back, you know, it would prop them up and be such a help. You couldn't walk very good, I told her, but she said, oh, yes, you could. And to prove it, she commenced whistling the wedding march and walking stiff-kneed away from the woodpile to the tune of it. She looked so funny that I started to laugh, when just then I heard another laugh on the other side of the honeysuckle vines. I found a place where I could peep through and saw it was Julius and Mr. MacDonald who had come out to view Mr. Claiborne's hotbeds, and greatly complimenting them, Julius knowing that it's a fine thing to stay on the good side of your father-in-law in case you lose your job. I knew they heard what Miss Sis had said, for they were laughing very hard which caused Mr. MacDonald to look real young, being as his eyes can twinkle. I knew it would be mortifying for her to see that they had heard her, so I hollered and told her that I heard Marcella calling her from the upstairs window, so she ran right on in without coming back to the woodpile. I started to go on after her, but just as I got to the kitchen door, I remembered that I had left my pretty white sunbonnet that Mammy Lou had freshly ironed for me, on the woodpile and ran back to get it. 
Julius and Mr. MacDonald were right where they were, only looking in the other direction and talking very seriously, so I stayed a minute out of friendly interest. Although so bright and amusing, she is never silly, I heard Mr. MacDonald's long, slow voice saying. She is a very lovely, fascinating little woman. So I took a seat on the woodpile. You'd better fall in love with her, Julius said, cutting the briars off of a long switch he held in his hand and talking careless-like, as if he wasn't paying much attention. Your advice comes too late, Mr. MacDonald said, his voice so solemn that Julius looked up in surprise. What? Julius remarked. Yes, Mr. MacDonald said, sounding very devoted. I did that very thing the first moment I looked at her dear sweet face. Julius stared at him a minute, and then laughed a tickled laugh, and I moved my seat right up to the hedge so I could get a good look at them, and it was the next best thing to a proposal. That's the funniest thing I've ever heard of, Julius said after he had quit laughing. It's devilish funny to you, poor Mr. MacDonald said, looking like he didn't know whether to laugh or to cry. But what am I to do? Do, said Julius, very businesslike, like folks talk when they're telling you to follow their example. What do men in your situation usually do? Why, well, propose to her. But she'd never marry me, he said, looking right pitiful, for he spoke as humble as if he wasn't any taller than me, and him over six feet tall. It would be the most absurd thing in the world for a man like me to propose to a woman like her. No, you're wrong, Julius told him, still half laughing. The most absurd thing would be that she would accept you. I'm awfully tired tonight, and it would cramp my hand nearly to death to write all about the wedding, how Julius looked happy up to the last, and how Marcella cried just enough to appear ladylike on her lace handkerchief and how the family relatives cried a little too. Weddings are all alike, but proposals are all different, and I think I better use more space on them in my diary, so my grandchildren won't get sleepy over the sameness. But it would be a waste of handwriting to tell how Miss Sis tormented poor Mr. MacDonald all day, making him chase around after her trying to get in a private loving word and me just crazy to see whether she really was going to accept him or not, although I might have known. He followed her up, though, looking so brave and determined that he reminded me of the boy stood on the burning deck. She worried him so that all through the ceremony he looked so pale and troubled that you'd have thought it was him getting married. Finally, just before it was time for the train that he was going back to town on to blow, she changed about and commenced acting sweet. All this was nice enough to watch, but is a cramp and to write about. And anyhow, the main thing with me was to see whether she was going to accept him or not. I stayed close to their heels all day, but he didn't get a chance to propose until just after dark, down by the front gate, with nobody around except me and a calicanthus bush. And, well... You just ought to have seen her accepting him. End of chapter 7 Read by C.J. Ploke